I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret – never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode, I'm joined by a man who, when he entered the music business in the 1970s, always dreamt of working with a famous band. Well, how about two? Dennis Monday played a key role in the chart success of The Jam and The Style Council in his time as product manager and A&R at Polydor. He's also the man who brought us those incredible box sets at the end of each band too. Let's get into it. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. No problem. Really looking forward to this one because you were there uh, what seems like a very chaotic time, but we'll get into that. A really exciting time with the Jam and the Style Council. When was it that you first came across Paul Weller? Well, when I was uh, the Jazz A&R manager, I went into the press office for something and the guys were in there and they were in their black mohair suits and it's something I've never forgotten it reminded me of when I was a mob and it kind of shook me a bit because I sort of looked at them and I thought well that's, that, that was me I think 10-15 years ago I'd gotten into punk music even though I was still listening to jazz and I was interested in it because for me the 70s was a lot of crap I was really pleased I did the jazz because I didn't have to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it came along, I got interested because it, it was exciting. So you were working at Polydor, was it Jazz A&R manager? So this was with yeah. people like Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, Dizzy Gillespie, working with like the legendary producer, Norman Granz as well, who's, who's known as the man who helped create the music business. So that on its own is a pretty exciting job. Yeah, it was a phenomenal time because I was, I think, 24 when I started, it was really into the lion's den. But when you're that age, you've got no fear. When I got the job, I thought, great, this is phenomenal. I really enjoyed it. It wasn't like going to work. I, I mean, in the summer, if I woke up early, I'd go into work. I wouldn't sort of turn over and say, oh, I'll sleep for another hour. I'd actually go into work. And you were really into that music as well, weren't you? So that was. A- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, when I was, uh, I think about 14, 15, I got into jazz music. I wasn't quite a mob then. I was still at school. 
we were listening to rhythm and blues pop music, and then I, I got heavily into the blues. And then one day I went around a mate's house and he played me some jazz music. That was it. Couldn't afford to buy records, so I went to the library and used to borrow records. So you'd go down and borrow three or four records. The first record I listened to was Charlie Parker, and when I heard him, I just couldn't believe it. And that's what is amazing about that time is that that Parker record, it was produced by Norman Graham. It was a compilation compiled by John Snell, and Alan Morgan did the sleeve notes. And Ten years later, I was working with Norman Graham. John Snell was working for me, and Alan Morgan was writing sleeve notes. <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. Uh, 1977, Chris Parry signs the jam to Polydor. Yeah. We have um, that incredible first single in the city and that first album. And I want to touch on uh, the point that you start getting involved with the jam because, I mean, this seems like a nuts thing where In the City comes out, I think it's April, May. And then six months later, they're expecting another album. And Paul has to write, this is the modern world, um, six months later. And then surprise, surprise, it doesn't do as well as maybe everybody thinks. But that's an incredible thing to have to call out the bag. Isn't well, it? I, I, my feelings were and are that the record business didn't want that at all. They were totally against it. They were hoping it would burn out. And I think that they viewed all the bad that get in, make as much money as you can before it disappears. They didn't see it as uh, any of the bands having any future. And I think that's why the, they, they were forced to do the second album, because in those days, you did one album every year, you know, because the second album is the hardest. The first is easy because it's what you've been playing for, you know, a year or whatever. Uh, but it's a lot better than people give it credit for. And also, as, as Paul is a songwriter, because it, it's, it does stand up on its own. It's, it's not as bad as people made it out to be. Actually, when you look back, for a songwriter to have done that is, a fin- is phenomenal. Oh, yeah, incredible. And you can hear the progression. That's the thing as well, I oh, think, yeah, can't you? Yeah. From, from album one to album two, yeah, in that yeah. short period of time, you can, you can hear that progression. So at which point did you become, and am I right in saying it's product manager? Was that product your title? Yeah, yeah, so I came in, I think it was down in the tube station at midnight. Chris was still working there, and they were doing recording the third album. That's when it all kicked off, because... I walked in, and that was the time when Chris turned all the demos down, and it was a, a not a particularly pleasant time, I have to say that, because he was quite rude about, you know, Bruce, and, you know, go back and play the bass, you're not a songwriter, and there, it was very heavy at the time. I remember the first meeting, I sort of walked out of there thinking, I don't know if I want to do this. <laughs> you know, it was that heavy, you know. Really? I, left, I remember Bruce said, oh, you're Jim Cook's spy, and Jim Cook was my boss. It was a strange time, and then Chris left uh, to to form with a cure and form fiction record. And they got an A and R man in, but he came to me and said, "Look, I can't deal with it. They don't want to talk to me." You know, and then my boss said, "Right, you have to do both jobs. You are now the A and R man and the product man." They didn't pay me anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, presumably, same money. Yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nothing's changed in that front, my friend. No, no, no. <laughs> there's a lot of rumours that there's a you know, secret third album, so the, reje- no, the rejected no. stuff still exists somewhere. But I'm guessing, really, in reality, it went away and they reworked it and came back. They with something. either reworked it or I've been through the archives, and I've also been through Paul's archives. And I, I mean, I never found any uh, that, that warranted that sort. Of yeah, the, the stories were that they delivered an album. Well, they didn't. They delivered some demos, most of them Bruce's. And that's when Chris came in and said, no, go back and start again. Then his relationship with the band started to break up because he only produced, I think, 
three or four tracks on the album, and they decided they just wanted to go with Vic. And what an album that one is! I mean, um, uh, Vic Coppersmith Heaven, who's the producer as well, creating what is that that true jam sound. You've got David Watts Tube Station, which is you know still stacks up as a, as a great song today as singles. It gets to number six in the chart. There was one bit, I, and I heard rumours. I don't know how true this is, but about George Martin being they, they wanted to bring George Martin in to replace Vic. Uh, is that right? That's probably after all mod comes. I mean, for some reason, the management didn't like Vic. They wanted to get rid of him. I was in a meeting and they said to me that we had a guy working at Polydor called Tony Bramwell who had worked with the Beatles for 10, 11 years. He knew everyone in the business. And he said, you know, we can get George Master. I said, well, you know, no. I said, Vic did a great job on all mod comms. And he did because he pulled it together. And I can't fault the production on it. Um, you, you, know, you don't change a winning horse and job. The main reason was that I didn't think George Martin was right for the jam. He was my father's generation. Now, my generation was running the business and didn't like that. And he didn't like that. I, I read somewhere that he right. said that he really didn't like this kind of music. So I couldn't see that working. And also, his diary would have been full. So we would have needed another album in 79 and I doubt that he would have had the time. And they said, well, we'll just do a single. And I said, well, that's no good, because if it's a big hit, you've got to come with an album within you know, that space of time. It doesn't work right. But it, I don't think it was a good idea, personally. I mean, George Martin's a great producer, but I think he's made a few albums that didn't sell. I was reading your book, and one thing that kind of really really springs to mind is how you're the quite often the middleman between the Wellers and Polydor. Yeah. Um, and you've got... I mean, such a close relationship with the band to the point that you're labelled almost the fifth member. If John's the fourth, you're the fifth member of the band. It seemed like there was a lot of them like just warring back and forth in terms of... Well, it's ama- I mean, it's amazing anything good came out of this relationship with the, with the record label, quite frankly. But there was, well, it, seemed- no, it, it was bad, but a lot of... When I look back now, all the fights I had with the jam and even the style council, I mean, I won them all. So why did we have to fight in the first place? You know, if I was running the company and I didn't want something to happen, it wouldn't happen. They would back down every time. And a lot of it, a lot of it was because they didn't like the Congress because they were doing what they wanted to do. They wouldn't be smoothed out, which is why they wanted to bring George Martin and smooth them out for America. And that, which wouldn't have made any difference. That's the whole point of punk. It wasn't. You mentioned America, and I think this is something I really wanted to touch on because the jam and the style council never really, I mean, there was like the odd song, but never really broke the states. And Paul Solo, pretty much the same, really, on, on the scale that they deserved. The biggest problem with that is he has never wanted to do the, the long American tour. And you have to do that. You have to go there for a year, nine months. If you look at the way the jam and the style council, they play half a dozen dates on one coast, go over to the West Coast, half a dozen dates. What about the middle? People forget that when you tour America, how many cities have you got to play? You know, 200. Look at the state of, you know, say, California. You can't just play Los Angeles or San Francisco. There's everywhere. They never wanted to do it. In fact, Paul said in an interview, I think last year or the year before, when he was asked that question, and he said, because I wouldn't do the tour. And I actually flew over. I was told to fly over. This was around, I think, sound effects time and attend a meeting. And my, my, the old man said to me, you've got to go over and tell them. I said, look, it's a waste of time unless they go. He said, no, no, you go. So I flew over, which was, I think I flew first class as well, which was great. <laughs> and uh, 
I, <laughs> I think I threw up on the, the Wednesday night, arrived Thursday, had the meeting on Friday. And, and the guys were up for it. There's no doubt. There were three or four guys there that really liked the jam. They said, are they going to tour? And of course, I said, no. That's the end of it. People don't understand. <laughs> they said good, goodbye and you flew home. <laughs> yeah, I did. People don't understand. If you look at the way, you know, someone like Led Zeppelin or, you know, even the Stones and all those bands, they went there and played, you know, a couple of hundred days. It's the equivalent is like playing North, South, Central and Eastern Europe. You know, you can't just do one day in each capital. It doesn't work that way. I know Paul... When he left the jam, he didn't want to get back into that touring, touring, touring. He wanted to, I mean, really control what was going his life. We'll come on to the jam live in a sec because, I mean, A, how your liver <laughs> stood up to that, I don't know. But um, <laughs> but that sounds so exciting. But um, I think let's, let's kind of stick to the albums for a second because I think at this point we're walking through, you know, All More Cons, terrific, still stands up now. But at this point, they're still yet to have a top 10 hit. Gary Crowley, I think he was like 15 at the time working for the jam program. Promo uh, manager Clive Banks. He mentioned yeah. to me on um, on Twitter about uh, asked Dennis about Clive Banks because that was a really crucial appointment in terms of him plugging Eaton Rifles, wasn't it? Well, it was. I was unhappy with the company uh, with when you're young. Now that was a step up from all the other singles because they bought in that reggae type riff, and I thought, wow, this is it. People can't complain about this because it's hard or it's and lyric wise, it was great. And I really thought that this would be the one. And when it didn't happen, I was mad. I wrote a letter to everybody, all the probably the board of directors, castigating them. In fact, when I, I came back from lunch and my secretary said, you can't send me. <laughs> he said, You'll get the sack. That's the equivalent of save to draft now when you write. <laughs> yeah. like... And I said, well, and I said, okay. And then I said, no, fuck it, send it. Love it, uh, love you it. Know, whatever happens, happens. And my boss came in steaming and he threw the memo on the table and he said, when the ship goes down, it'll go down with all the bangs. And I said, well, and I explained in the letter that if you look at the history of music, every decade you get two or three acts that go on to have a, you know, a career of three or four decades. And I went back to the 30s. I went back to you know, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, right through the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. But where they have gone on, they were still relevant then. And I said that the jam will be one of those bands. So true. And when they finished eating rifles, there was the line in it where I went to bed with a charming young thing. You know, the one thing about promo guys, they're always looking for a way out, <laughs> you know, because if you don't get the record played. And I thought, well, I know what they're going to say. They're going to come back to me and say, you know, the BBC. And anyway, I had a meeting with the boys about it. Unusually, they weren't that angry. I went in and they said, well, we got a change. We want a change. I said, okay, but it's not going to be that easy. I'd known Clive. I'd worked with him with another band called The Dodgers. He was also managing bands as well. And he was one of the best. I went and played in the single. He said, great. I said, will there be a problem with that specific lyric? He said, no. And I thought, okay, fine. I spoke to my boss and he wasn't happy. Managing director wasn't happy. And we sat around the table, John, myself, Tony Bramwell, and the managing director. And John said, they're not happy. What do you think then? And I said, well, there's got to be a change. I couldn't see the point. If you've got no relationship with the group, then... And the difference is, I guess, he was able to kind of get a switch from the records being played to John Peel to Breakfast. I think Eden Rifles was the first record that John Peel didn't get the first part. He got the right. second. I did right. two acid dates. 
One was for Mike Reed, who did the breakfast cut. And the second one was for Peely. Because normally I would get an acetate cut. He would always get the first plug on all the punk stuff. And other bands like the Calls and things like that. Dive was very positive. There was no negativity. And that, to me, really came home. And he delivered. And also he was able, because he understood, you know, dealing with Paul, he understood what it was about. And he didn't get uptight if Paul said, I don't want to do this and whatever. He just, you know, moved on. Mm. Uh, he did a great job. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and again, I mean, obviously it's a, about the quality of the material as well. And that song still, I mean, what, what would it have been like the first time you kind of hear a song like that delivered to you and you're like, oh, you must be just rubbing your hands going, my God, this is incredible. Well, no, I, I remember that, you know, I was saying, you know, it's out the box as far as I'm concerned. But I still had that worry, even after all my cons. I mean, that, that's what really pissed me off. The company went off the boil because they saw all my cons as the apex. And I thought, well, you can't be. Listen to the bloody songwriting. It's not the apex. This is, you know, the beginning. You know, it's the transition from, you know, the, the young man writing in the city and all that stuff. The suddenly, you know, a, a serious songwriter. And even songs which aren't listed on the album, but I think there's like English Rose is on the album, but not listed. We kept adding songs and... Uh, <laughs> and so we'd already printed the sleeve, so it just had to, had to. He said, "I want it on," and that's it. So it went on. You mentioned at the beginning about the jam being around Polydor, and you kind of seeing the, these these smart lads in their suits. They were often around the place, and they were very. Oh pop- no, they were very popular. Was that right? Yeah, oh yeah. But in those days, all the bands came there. I mean, oh really? I can remember sort of in, in where our offices were. You'd get the jam, jam sixty nine, the calls level forty two. Jack attack, and they'd all be milling around. I mean, it's trying to trying to get work done was very difficult. <laughs> uh, even you know, Van Gallis used to come in, <laughs> and in those days, the bands did. They they wanted to be part of the company, and it was great because they would talk to the girls, they would talk to the like the guy in the pub uh, who was a huge fan, <laughs> and uh, they were they were you know they'd make coffee. I mean, there's many times I you know Paul would come in with a cup of coffee for me. Sit down, and it was a tremendous time to be working in a record. It was a proper record. How exciting, God! When we get into sound effects, you mentioned earlier, I heard this was probably the most problematic jam album that you'd worked on for a number of reasons. One, it seemed like Paul was kind of messing up when you kind of go back into the archive, Paul was spending a lot of time messing about just recording cover versions of songs. Oh, that he likes. They, right? they, yes, there was a lot of that, but they wanted to do a spontaneous album, which never worked, and it wasn't as spontaneous because when I look back at the dates, a lot of the stuff was demo. The, decided to uh, what they call a lockout, which means that you have the studio for 24 hours. Now, normally, you what you do is you book it for 12 hours, someone else comes in and use it for that, and, then you, and that's how it works. But if you do lockout, then you pay twice the time. And we ended up with a bill for or they ended up with a bill for £120,000. Which yeah. is what, like three, time, three, four times the amount it should be, is it? Uh, well, it should have been about I would have been okay with 50 or 60. Right, okay. That still would have been excessive. That was okay. But once you get to that, and when I start, I mean, I, I found a two-inch master tape, which I, I listened all the way through, which was a conversation Paul was having with the trumpet player. <laughs> the whole of the tape, I think it's about 18 <laughs> minutes or 20 minutes. It's just his conversation. So <laughs> every, I think everyone was to blame. I think it could have been harder on them. I, I really don't think you needed to do lockout. That's for sure. And also, you know, it's my job to keep an eye on that, but 
I got to a point where the girl was coming in and saying, have you seen the bill? And I said, look, we've got to get the record out. Let's just run with it and see what, what occurs. And there was a proposal for Godly and Cream to finish up the writing of it as well, wasn't there? So, <laughs> so Paul was, what, struggling to finish the finish the lyrics no, of the was, album? It was in the middle of the summer. Paul came in to see me and said that he, he didn't want to finish it. He said, I haven't got the songs. And I think it was just one of his ever-changing moods. <laughs> um, and I said, okay, fine. If you haven't got the songs, then and let's not get into it. I went up and told the old man. I said, look, he's genuine about it. I don't think he's mucking about because he wasn't that way inclined. He wasn't one of you know one of those sort of artists that petulant or anything like mm. that. And he just turned around at me. Now he signed Godly and Cream the Poly. And I think I was look. I may have been looking after him at the time. I can't remember. It's possible because I, I did Godly and Cream for about a year. He said, "You know, Kevin Long could." write songs from them and help them finish the album. Of course, for that one moment, I just did not know what to say. Because <laughs> he's the MD, I can't say no. <laughs> And I said, look, I said, seriously, I, I know they could, they're brilliant, but I don't think the fans would like it. And I don't know how I'd sell that yeah. to the band. Wow, that was, I mean, can you imagine? I don't know, God, unbelievable, yeah. That album was also the end of Vickers' producer, and, and I think at that point, Paul's kind of knackered, creatively exhausted. There was something I read about the, the kind of idea of, when you talk about record sales, the a lot of the singles, there was short, sharp sales where the fans would kind of get in really early. You'd have this kind of big sales for like a week, two weeks, and then it would uh, filter out. Would that be right? Yeah, basically, they used to do 250,000 in the first two or three weeks, which meant that whatever chart position they went to, it wouldn't last long because they would probably sell 60% of their sales in that two weeks, whereas other bands would take five, six, seven weeks. And once they got to number one, they'd stay longer. But with the jam and their fans, the fans just went out and bought them on that. So you wouldn't have that kind of idea where something would kind of come in lower and then climb the charts. It would just yeah. bang in a couple of weeks. That's right. That's yeah. right. Which again is even more of a need for new material continuously, isn't it? Because it's yeah. kind of- the one thing that I remember about sound effects, he was demoing in Polydor Studio, which he did a lot. And we had a conversation, and this was the summer of 1980. And we were talking about the jam, and he just said to me that he didn't want the jam to become, I guess, like the Rolling Stones and some of the other bands just going around playing their hit. He said, I want them to mean something. I don't want to end up, want them to end up on the chicken in a basket. But, <laughs> you know, just regurgitating all the, the hit. And I remember driving home thinking, that's very strange, very odd thing to start because the group were, you know, really happening by then. It was a very strange thing to start. At that point, they're having number one singles. And- yeah, yeah. Bigger than ever, like you say. Um, Underground style. Yeah. I mean, huge big songs. I mean, Paul is kind of getting new influences. Um, is That jam sound is kind of changing quite a lot. And oh, he's yeah. kind of pushing you know, different things. And we're getting B-sides like Tales of the Riverbank, these kind of yeah. really changing styles. Um, and then we're going to get into the, the gift. And I know um, you've said that Paul wanted to kind of make the greatest jam album ever, which is immediately kind of setting yourself up for a fall, I think. That's exactly what... I, I, I'm not sure I said that, but that's what I thought. You can't say that. You, you can all you can say is I'm going to go in and try and make. but when you go in and do that I think that, that you, you are setting yourself up for a disappointment and we're into the final days of the jam and um, how did you find out about the breakup and second question on that how, how did you feel I'm imagining devastated no I wasn't devastated no, no I kind of like I'm not saying I, I expected it but it wasn't unexpected I mean if you look at uh, 81 you, that's to me when I realised that 
perhaps this would happen. You have the two singles, um, Funeral Pyre and Absolute Beginners. Well, when Funeral Pyre came out, I thought that's standing still. That's not going forward. Every other single, there was a step forward. Sometimes a small step, sometimes a big step. But that could have come out in 79 or 80. And then you get to Absolute Beginners, and that's, that's completely you know, left field, totally left field. I mean, I remember at the time going down the beetroot club with him, and I just you know, it was very strange because I didn't think he liked the kind of stuff. And he was getting into stuff like Spandau Valley, and basically he was broadening his horizon, which was influencing the way he, you know, he'd gone from being, you know, influenced by the Kings, the Beatles, the Hurt, and now there was other things coming in. You know, he was listening to a lot, a lot of different stuff, and he was channeling that through, as any great songwriter does. Well, and also as anybody who's kind of coming, what would you have been like 22, 23, maybe around that time? Yeah. 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 yeah you're leaving your youth behind. You're discovering entirely new well, things. Well, that's right. You can't go on being no. the angry young man. No. I mean, I've tried it long enough, but even I have to give it up. <laughs> I mean, you must have witnessed this kind of deterioration then of, of the kind of band and that relationship between, well, between the three yeah, of them, presumably. I, th- I think ultimately the reason that he split the jam up, I think there's several. I think one is that. I remember when we listened to The Gift, we had a playback meeting at George Martin Studios where it was recorded. And we sat there and I could see that Paul wasn't 100% happy. I mean, it's just his, his body language. Everything. It's an album that didn't really work. When it worked, it worked. But when it didn't, it didn't. You know, it's got some great songs on. You can hear where, where Paul is, is moving away. The jam are standing still, but he's moving away. And also, I think that it, because he wanted to control his career, he wanted to control his, the kind of music he was recording, which he couldn't do in the jam because it's, you know, democracy rule. What's the point of writing songs, recording them, and then you think, well, that's not what I want? You know, you can't do that. There's several tracks on the album that just they don't work. And I've, I've often thought, well, I'd love to hear that the style counts for it do some of the tracks on. Is it true that John and, and Polydor kind of wanted to keep it secret, the split from Rick and Bruce as well? So, Well, they did, yes. It was silly, really, because I think that they were worried because there was this huge tour book. They were worried that Bruce might not do it. In fact, he did He did walk out, which is understandable. It was a shock. Yeah. I mean, I was there when he was told, and it was a shock. You know, we went round the pub, you know, I'm feeding him beer and whatever, and saying, you know, and trying to sort of tell him, look, you know, it's one of those things. There's nothing to be done if that's what Paul wants. The, I mentioned earlier about the live gigs with the jam, which so many of the people who have been on the podcast have talked about like being in the crowd watching those things and the energy, the um, impact and the, and the power of those gigs. But you would go on the road with the jam as much as you possibly could, I understand. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to get out of the office. No, no, but I, the reason for that is when I did the jazz stuff, I used to tour with them. I used to tour with Oscar, Count Basie the orchestra. I used to go on the road with them. And it was something that was, you know, I just, when I went in the, the that side of the business, it just followed that, you know, I was, it was a bit different because when I went on the road with Oscar Peterson, we had a limousine. Right. So I'm driving around. It. No, it's, not, it's not a bus. I mean, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> Love it. But it was, it was great fun. And obviously, I used to record quite a few gigs. I used to try and record them two or three times a year. Oh, 
And so I'd have to go to the gigs just to make sure that nothing went wrong, you know, that everything, all sorts of things can happen. But it was great fun. You got your own tour jacket as well, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I, I had my own tour jacket. Yeah, John used to give me... I, I think the first one I got was probably Setting Sun, the Setting Sun tour. And I always got a tour jacket, Amazing. which I think I gave away. I gave away most of my jacket. Oh, man. <laughs> Imagine. No, I, <laughs> I gave it to fans that you know. We need to track down those fans. Um, what, can can you remember what your all time favourite jam gig would be? Uh, Newcastle City Hall, the one that where the the, the tube, Malcolm Gary came along to record that. I think it was a thirty minute documentary. Right. Oh yeah. That yeah. Was the best one because now normally I was recording it anyway, but normally when I had the soundtrack there. I would go into the soundtrack, into the hall, back and forth. So I never actually saw the whole gig. But Malcolm said, oh, no, I'll take care of the sound, don't worry. And I thought, great. And so, and Peter Wilson was there at the time, funny enough. And I used to stand on the mixing deck. So I had a great position, as you see everything. The air was electric, really electric. And I remember the hackle standing up on my neck. And they came on, and it was like whoosh. It was like this huge, Electricity child, and the two girls or three girls behind were leaping up on top of it. <laughs> I mean, I have to say that technically it wasn't a particularly great performance, but it was so, you know, it was so on the button. They were so good that night. There was another story I heard about John Weller. I guess two questions I've got for you on that one just how important he was to the jam, to Paul, to that whole thing working and, and to him just pushing them and driving them forward. But then secondly, didn't he just used to wander around with suitcases of cash to pay people? <laughs> I think that was Brighton. And he had this those metal suitcases, metal briefcases. And he said, yeah, and look after that. And I'm trudging around with it. And I finally got fed up. And I said to Mike Bucket, who was the coach driver, I said, can we put this in the coach? Lock it in the toilet, then lock the bus. And then John turned up and said, where's the case? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I it back to you. And of course, he had all the tour, he had all the DMs in it. And it was a lot of money. And he was running around. And uh, I finally, I said, look, John, it's in the coach. Don't worry. And he called me. <laughs> yeah. John was very important. He gets a lot of stick, which is unwarranted. I mean, particularly from the record company. I mean, there was a time when they actually tried or wanted to replace get They wanted to get a professional manager in. What they saw as a typical record business manager. And I remember one guy they wanted. And he said, oh, I could really do a job on them. He's get them into America. And I said, well, you can't because you're a great guy, great manager. But within five minutes, either Paul or Bruce would give you a smack in the mouth. <laughs> and that's it. But John was very important to Paul all the way through his career. And people forget that certainly once you get beyond the jam, as I said, I come back to why he split the jam up so he could control everything. And I don't mean that negatively or big headed. He suddenly decided this is what I want to do. And he had his father behind him. Now, other managers might have said, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, if you look at some of the records, the style council, like the money got around, the miners wrecked. Now, your typical record biz manager would say, oh, you can't make that. Oh, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Very few people, you know, at that time wanted to make that sort of stuff. And he was doing that in the jam. And I think that what was great about John was he was a lot better manager than people give him credit for I can tell you that he had the best lawyers he always had same as their promoter was one of the best he always had 
people there who were the best. So there, there was, he was surrounded by a team. The biggest decisions a group makes is the music. Now, a manager's got very little sway over that. And Paul, I want to do this. I want to record that. That's it. And John went along. There was no, he didn't try and fight it, whereas other people may have tried to fight. Part of the management is kind of negotiating those deals and things. And we'll come on to the Star Council and these huge contracts, these huge advances they had for, or Paul had for some of these albums. But essentially, it started off, it was kind of like a solo deal that he had with Polydor. What, when after the jam? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, we signed Paul Weller. Right. He finished up the jam contract. They had to give us that. And dig the new breed. Dig the new breed. Right. They had to give us a live album, um, what they termed as the greatest thing. Um, I think I, I compiled that. Then he signed as a solo artist because Mick was in the group. He was already in, but he signed as a solo act. You are still part of this, and you're and you move through the, to to be you know play the same role within the Star yeah. Council. And this is a hugely exciting new band. Really interesting at that time at launch is kind of a real fluid lineup. So people like Tracy Young, who's on Paul's Respond label, is, is on the Speak Like a Child song. Paul's move into jazz, which I know is funny because did, didn't he kind of make a comment about it was, jazz was a load of old crap when he first met you or something? I remember when I started, I, you know, I said I'd work with all these guys, and he just said, "Well, it's a load of fucking crap." You say, <laughs> which was it very typical of youth, the youth. Yeah. Any youth. I mean, even in, when I was listening to jazz, a lot of my mates weren't interested. I remember when we used to go up west on a Saturday night, we'd go past Ronnie Scott's, the old place. And I'd say, no, no, come on, let's go. No, 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 we're going to the Flamingo and the whiskey and... Um, no, we don't listen to that. You go on your own, which obviously I wouldn't do. But yeah, this really kind of exciting new band. And like you say, Mick's kind of involved from, from day one. But Steve White, I, it was all down to you, right? Didn't you just, dis- you discovered Steve? Yeah. Well, I mean, Paul phoned me up when I had to finish the album. And that first year, 83, was, it was well laid back. There was, you know, although <laughs> the one thing that with Paul, he's always done, he's always got his records out on time. I would go down and say, right, you've got to do three singles. Bang, bang, bang. We do one here. Right, you've got to do this. You've got to work through the schedule. And it was, okay, fine. And most of their records always came out on time. Very rarely did they ever get put back. Going underground did for a week and sound effects. But the rest, he was very business-like. John was as well, because John was sitting there and said, well, come on, we've got to get this done. You know, Because in those days, it took 12 weeks to get a record out. It wasn't mm. like CDs, which you can do in a couple of days. You had to start with label copy, then get the artwork done. And the pressing is the last thing, and everything had to be coordinated. I have to say with the style count, I remember going into work in the new year, and I was excited, really excited. And everyone who worked with the jam, it didn't matter what you did, whether it was Big Kenny, there was so much pressure, and a lot of it was unnecessary, that, that it was a relief. It was like a weight. I always used to, like, when we're doing a single, when it was finished, it was it charted, it done, it done its thing. Then I, I, it was relief. You know, I could listen to it or I could, you know, relax until, you know, the next part. Coming back to Steve, yeah. he phoned me up. They were recording uh, Cafe Blur and they were late. And he phoned me up and he said, look, I haven't got time. Can you find me a young drummer that can play everything? Uh, anyway, I put the phone down and I thought, fucking hell, you know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not a great lover of wanting to listen to 50, 60 drummer. And there was a, we had a soul band, I can't remember their name. He'd been uh, auditioning drummers. And I said, look, I'm looking for young to play, must be able to play jazz. And he gave me two names. The first one I phoned up, and I can't remember his name, but he didn't come across. And then I phoned Steve up. And then, of course, Steve 
South East London boy like me. And I grew up in the area he grew up. I went to the same school as him. I asked him about himself, and he told me that Bill Bruford gave him lessons. Well, Bruford, he only gave lessons to people that he wanted to give lessons to. You couldn't phone Bill up and say, I'm a drummer, can you give me some lessons? He wouldn't do that. So he had to be good if Bill Bruford was, you know. And he said all the right, pressed all the right buttons. So I said, okay. So I set up the audition, and that was it. How old is Steve at this point then? Like 18, 17, 18 or something? 17, I think. 17. I mean, wow. Can you imagine that? Didn't his, didn't his mum ring you back to check that it was right? It oh, was yeah. Straight. She said to me, I hope you're not fucking about. <laughs> Brilliant. And the funny thing is, it's even funnier, is that after I got to know him, I met his uncle. I met his dad. I used to go out around his house. And they started talking about his dad's brother. Morris White. And I said, well, I knew Morris White. Mojo. And they said, yeah, Mojo. He used to DJ at Cholton. And when we were mods, we used to knock about with, together with him. Oh, God, him. how funny. I mean, my brother knew him. Yeah. And it's strange that Mojo, I went to visit him. He ran a pub. And I remember going down with Steve. How funny. Wow, what a small world. God. Yeah. Um, so, and the Star Council is unconventional, it's risky. They kind of went against all the rules to so the point that the first album comes out, and a good bulk of it is instrumental. I think the company expected, you know, an album full of Big Lucky Charm, Long Hot Summer. And that was the other thing I actually touched on with the jam and, and the style council. And you don't see so much of this now is the importance of the singles. So you'd have singles which wouldn't be on albums from both bands. Oh, um, yeah. And which is just, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, the single I did, the single even exists probably. I'm not sure, but, but you'd have to really work these singles in your role, wouldn't you? And you've got these tracks that like you say, like Speak Like a Child and, and Long Hot Summer to then get delivered an album that. Nowadays, those those songs will be a huge big part of the album, but they weren't. Oh then, yeah, were they? yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't but imagine. What that, I did was uh, while they were recording, I never let anyone hear anything. They had no inkling of what the album was going to be like. So I knew. I, I thought if they even get a whisper of this, I'll be up on the naughty chair again. <laughs> They're going to kick off again. <laughs> wow. Okay. Pensioned off the naughty chair. <laughs> <laughs> So I mentioned about you having to work these singles. Where You're the Best Thing is, is a song that Paul still plays it live now on, on occasion. It's, it's, a, it's a great song. Didn't you write some of the lyrics? Is that true? Yeah, I did. Smash It at the time used to reprint lyrics. And, and the girl there phoned me up and said, we get to the bridge and I can't understand what you're singing. So I listened. And Paul did have a habit of mumbling. I'm sure if he wasn't happy, totally happy with it, he'd give it a... <laughs> And I, I listened, I thought, so anyway, I got the master tape, the 24 track, and just put the vocals up. I wrote what I thought he sang. Didn't think anything of it. Then he phoned me up and said, I've just read Smash It, I'm coming in to see him. And I thought, <laughs> I had no idea what, you know, yeah. what he was saying. And he just walked in and he said, no, no, they're good. What I wrote was fucking shit. I'm going to use those. And then they went back and re-recorded and use the lyrics that yeah. actually you'd written. Amazing. There's, there's about three or four different versions of that song now. The original yeah. single doesn't have that, because I know he went back. God, I've forgotten what a big thing Smash Hits was as well. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, yeah. I used to have thousands of those in a garage, and for some reason I was saving them all, and then went, went to move house once and went out there, and they were all just damp, soaked, yeah. completely ruined. Why I was trying to keep these, I do not know, but anyway. Now, whilst they're recording our favourite shop, which I think most people will say was their kind of best work album-wise, yeah. you make up your mind to quit Polydor. So you've kind of yeah. been there from... Tube Station, David Watts, like you said, yeah. friends with them all, all the way through to that point. That must have been a really hard decision. 
for me, it wasn't. In that respect, yes. But the, the actual to, to leave wasn't. Uh, a year before, the whole management changed. And they brought all these young guys in. And I thought, well, that's got to be better. My boss and the, the MD were completely out of touch with music. They were still in, stuck in the set. Well, the MD was stuck in probably the 60s, but my boss was stuck in the 70s. And I thought, well, this is going to be different. But it wasn't. It was actually, you know, worse in many ways. They wanted to try and make the company upmarket friendly. And I remember saying, you, you can't make Polydor friendly or upmarket as long as you're selling James Lahr, Bert Campbell, and Andrew Lloyd Webber. It, it doesn't work. The, the way I would sell Polydor is that it's bland. You know, they're, they're the focal point. If you go to Virgin, the focal point is Virgin. If you go to Stiff, it's Stiff. Whereas when the jam did their own label, that was it. It was a jam record. I decided to do it then. And I spoke to a friend of mine, and I was earning a lot of money at that time. And he said, well, I think you should wait. And I thought, okay, I'll give it till the end of the year, which I did. At that time, I was making, I'd made a few Christmas records, Sing Along a Santa, the first two charts. So I thought Christmas would put the third one out. And they said they didn't want to put it out. And I said, why not? He said, well, it's not the kind of record we want on Polydor. I said, well, it's a hit record. It's going to sell. And I thought, well, that's, that, that is not being trendy. That's not upmarket. That's stupid business. Because everyone had left, I, I, saw, I, I felt slightly in the frame, if you want. And then I got a friend of mine who was working this. He was a director. He said, you know, your name is coming up at the meeting, you know, you better prepare yourself. And I said, okay, well, they couldn't do anything because of the relationship with Paul. So I got into 85 and I thought, well, I really don't want to do this. I didn't go there for the money. I didn't, I never worked for the money. I worked because I enjoyed it. But, mm. you know, it was a great job. Now it wasn't a great job. And I was getting hassled and, you know, there were meetings that were unnecessary, unnecessary fights about stupid things. And I really just thought, well, that's it. I'm going to go. And I made the decision around the March, April. And I spoke to the MD and we agreed a package. And I said I'd wait until, I think he wanted me to wait until the end. I think it was the end of June, July. I can't remember exactly. And I, I left. In some ways, I kind of, I was pleased I did it when I did it because I went out with a bang. Our favourite shop was number one. And you went out post-Live Aid, which was huge. I, I left on the Friday, and the Live Aid was the Saturday. Didn't Steve White invite the whole of Glastonbury Festival to your leaving, do Well, that was the last gig I did. Uh, <laughs> he calmly walked up and said, Dennis is having um, a leaving do uh, next week. It's the Lamb and Flag, James Street. And uh, I thought, thanks. <laughs> And the two lads turned up. Amazing, really? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I've no regrets about leaving. People told me it was stupid because, you know, your career. And I said, well, that's not what I'm about. You know, you've only got one life. You're not substantially getting something out of what you're doing. Move on. You know, I know so many people, a very good friend of mine spent 27 years working in a bank and hated it from the first minute to the last. What's the point? Well, that's fair, isn't it? So at the point you're leaving, you, you were kind of presumably looking over to Polydor from the other side of the fence. And you, you obviously still got people that you know there. You're still in touch with Paul and then got that relationship. And he's getting these huge big advances for, for what was then the Orange album, Confessions of a Pop Group. Some There are some great songs on that stuff and a lot, and, and some of the material does really stack up. And then the rejection of modernism. But was it, it, it was getting like a million quid an album offered, wasn't it? But I remember because I was working on 
the back catalogue at the time, and I went to see him at No More, and he told me they offered him three million for three albums with no option. Now, normally the deal is the three albums and an option between for the record company to pick it up. So basically, it meant they had to give him three million wow. over the next three years. They had to give it to him. Now, Paul said to me, you know, I can't turn that money down. I mean, I, I would love to have seen John's phone. <laughs> he must have thought Christmas, you know, Easter, you know, everything has come up well. And it was a dumb deal to do. You know, you can't blame, you know, the band and John for taking it. I mean, it's mm. like if you're a plumber and you price a job at, say, 5000 and they come in and say, well, I'm going to give you 25000 for it. Well, you're not going to say no. But the problem with that is, my view on advances is for every pound you get, you've got to sell a record. So if you're getting a million pounds, you've got to sell a million records. Well, our favourite shop didn't. It sold 350000 I think. Now, overseas is bum. But if you can sell a million, you know, including all your overseas territories, that's great. But certainly our favourite shop didn't. Because it never really took off in America. It did okay, but nothing spectacular. And presumably with that kind of deal, you're kind of back to that pressure cooker. You're back to that pressure cooker well, of, of yes, it needed. Yeah. that, because now you've got to, every album's got to have at least two or three big hit singles. And, you know, they clearly didn't. I mean, there was a sort of decline. Perhaps it was inevitable because of the way that the structure of the band, the way that Paul was running it, that it was inevitable. But... For me, it would have been, if I'd have been there, I would have said, look, you know, it's crazy. You know, half a million is more than enough. And that gives you leeway. You should be able to sell half a million copies of, you know, our favourite shops certainly sold half a million. Well, why? You're in the money. You're not getting in the red. But then the hits dried up. So as the hits dried up and the album sold, I think the Orange album sold about 120,000 copies. I was told. Confessions, I think, sold 80,000. So by the time you get to modernism, you know, they're heavily in the red. And it was a business decision. It's, it's as simple as that. No A&R man would have, would have picked it up. He'd have lost the job. If, 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 if the guy had picked it up, he would have lost his job. And I know that you were close to Paul Still through that period, and you, you were there for the playback of that first solo album. Hearing that before its release was, must have been so exciting. This, this guy that you know and, and the family and the friends, well, you know, friends of the stuff, must be so exciting. Well, he was always going to come back. I never ever thought that he would give up. I think he lost his way with the style count. I think he was trying to get so far away from the jam that he got away from himself. If you, if you, if you get my drift. There was so much pressure in it that as soon as it started to, they weren't selling records, they weren't successful, reform the jam. And he didn't want to. And I mean, it, Once he left the jam, that was going to be it. He would never reform. And I think there was tremendous pressure on him to reform the jam because obviously if he'd have done that, the company would have picked it up, wiped out, you know, the arrears. But he didn't want to. And I think a lot of it, if you look at the last sort of year or so where he stopped playing the guitar. One could say dancing on stuff <laughs> loosely. He still had the energy. People have often said to me that he didn't have the energy in the council, but he did. You listen to that, certainly in the first three years. He wrote some blazing stuff. The political content was very hard. Since then, we're kind of, what, 30 years into a solo career. Mm. Um, I know that you're now in Italy. So as you look overseas to Paul and his career over here now, what do you make of the of On Sunset and True Meanings and, and everything that we've had in recent years? It's phenomenal that he's still capable of writing an album of original material that's quality songs. Now, usually, 
as I said, this comes back to what I said about the jam. Normally, by now, he, I mean, he could go around and sort of just singing his greatest hit from the jam. He could do it. But he doesn't want to. He still has that hunger. And he still has the ability. And I don't know many, I can't think of many, that have retained that ability to write original material that stands the test of time. And he, what he writes now, it stands the test of time. I mean, Dylan, for sure, uh, brings to Neil Young's another one, but Johnny Cash, you know, that, that they had. This is what, what I mean when I said about the jam originally, that if you look at every decade, there is always these figures coming up. And they go on 30, 40 years in some time. A couple of questions before you go, and this has been so delightful. So thank you so much for your time, Dennis. Oh, I really no appreciate this, mate. You mentioned about Christmas songs, and you didn't touch on the Greyhound All-Stars. <laughs> Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about this. This is this is a Polydor Christmas party, is that right? We used to throw a Christmas party for them. And then in 1980, John said to me, can we have a band? We don't want just a DJ. Can we have a band on? So I got my mate's band to do it, and they were a covers band. And they were really good, and they could do the Motown stuff. But they did their set, and John came up to me and he said, get them up, get the boys up. Because their families are there, they love it. And we got them up. And there was the Dolly Mixtures uh, and Shane McGowan. And I've never forgotten it because my mate said, he looks like a Morris Miner with the doors open. (laughs) (laughs) And I I was well pissed. I I remember the beer there was whopping, it was dreadful, but I was drinking stag, which is very strong. And I was really putting it away. And what you hear on YouTube is severely edited. Because some of the intros went on. Oh, I didn't know it was on YouTube. I'll have to have a hunt around. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I edited uh, down there. I mean, it's great because, I mean, everyone was there. I mean, Bruce uh, only played on the first number. No side fill. So he, 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 he went off and I got my mate Jeff to play bass with him. They did the three songs. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You mentioned the drinking. That sounded like quite a bit. I mean, quite a lot of the on tour sounded pretty messy to me. And I had a, I had a very similar conversation with Andy Lewis, who was part of the band 22 Dreams era. And it seemed like not an awful lot of change at that point. No, there were some very heavy nights, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly with the jam, we had what we called the 18, which was me through two or three of the, the, the roadies. And I mean, that was heavy. I mean, you, you, you were left first at the bar and the last of that. And the style council was pretty much the same, although Paul went in and out. Sometimes he was drinking, sometimes. You know, but Mick, Mick and I, we did. I remember, I think it was in Scandinavia. I think we did three days of drinking. Uh, and I remember in Brussels, that was in the very early days, the very first, the unofficial European tour. Well, I didn't actually use the bed in the hotel. <laughs> I just came back at five in the morning, showered, changed clothes, got on the bus. Wow, blimey. <laughs> that comes back to. You know, we were talking about all changing. I remember when we did the, the Paris photo session for Long Hot Summer, and all that, Peter Anderson and myself were late because I forgot they wanted to eat in some dump. And I said, Well, no, this is Paris, Polydor, Spain. There's a really good restaurant with good wine. And Peter and I went there, and now the session was for midnight at the Arkham Trial. And so we arrived maybe five minutes late, and Kenny went into one. Ball just turned around and said, For oh, fuck's sake, Kenny, it's not the jam. It's not important. And that, exactly. When I come back to why I think he had to leave, he had to get away from that. 
A couple of questions off the back of that and, and from some Weller fans who have been in touch as well. One one is, how much stuff is left in the archive? You've been so lucky to bring us some some great albums over the years from Extras, which was one of the, my very early discoveries of the jam, actually, was the greatest hits and then Extras in, I think it was 91, 92, something like that, yeah. which I loved. I love all those demos. I loved all those B-sides, various kind of live collections and stuff since, and yeah. the same with Star Council. Is there anything else? You mentioned about get, finally getting access to Paul's personal collection as well earlier on. Well, he, he, he said to me one day, he said, oh, he said, you can come in, I've got a box of stuff. And then he changed his mind. Oh, no. I'm, I'm sure. Paul. He has, he's always had his own studio and he was always recording. And I think he recorded a lot at home. And he, I would imagine there's a lot of stuff that, you know, maybe he didn't think was up to scratch and he binned it. I mean, I remember with Absolute Beginners, he came in, we listened to the demo. I gave him back the tape, he threw it in the bin and said, that's fucking shit, and walked out. Now, we did put that out, but I imagine there's a lot of, not a lot, but there is stuff of, certainly the style counts, and even the jam, there's still, there's not a great deal. But I would have liked to have seen the fifth CD put out with some extra tracks on the fifth CD of the the box set, because Mm. not everybody bought the box set. It it sold well, it was a phenomenal sell. I would have liked to have taken that and added a lot more track. But as they've done all these deluxe packages, there's other stuff that's come up. He lived in the studio. He was there, you know, all day, every day. So there must be... I remember seeing a tape box of Long Hot Summer that had about six or seven different 12-inch mixes on. I'd never seen them before. There, there is stuff there, but whether he wants to put it out or whether the record company, I don't know whether there's anyone at the record company has any idea of what to do. All the stuff I did, I came up with the idea. The the box set, I I came up with that whole idea of of, of the booklet, everything. Oh, it's lovely. It's brilliant. I I have to say. Two final questions before you go. Uh, One is, and this is going to be really difficult for you because you've been right, you were right amongst it, but you are allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your days. Nothing more. Which one would it be? And you can have Solo, you can have The Jam, you can have The Style Council, but which song are you going to have? I don't know whether I could, I could probably pick one from each era. As it's you, Dan, you can have one from each era, go on. <laughs> well, To Be Someone has always been one of my favourite songs. The Style Council, it would have to be um, the whole point. Oh, it's such a great song. I mean, it, it's political. It, it's, it's got, it's waspish record without a wasp. But it's absolutely a fire. I, I just think it's such a great record. A wildwood to me. And I think that album, when I heard it, that's all well. That's when you hear that's all well. You know, 100%. I had that album on directly before our conversation and um, uh, Man Alive, that's, that album oh, yeah, is yeah. terrific, terrific. It's, it's very difficult because he wrote so many great songs. He was such a great songwriter that, you know, you can sit there, you can literally, what do you pick off saying song? I love Boy About Tenor. I mean, that is one of the few songs that, that really is that, that energy that, that the Style Council was about. He captured that. It was the only one, really, that... That's such a great song. You know, but once you start talking, you start thinking, well, what about this? And what about that? And yeah. It's a tough question. That's my Paxman question at the end of the podcast. Um, <laughs> final thing, and this has been so lovely. Um, the main point of the podcast is desperately seeking Paul, the ambition to have a conversation with Paul at Black Barn at the end of this podcast series. And what one topic or question should I focus on? Is there is there anything you'd really like to know, Dennis? Not really, because you know everything, because the way he is. I mean, 
people always say to me, and I said, well, Paul's Paul. You know, he, he, uh, he criticises himself. You know, I've heard him say, you know, oh, I'm a moody bastard and whatever. Uh, I, I think you, there's certain questions that you shouldn't ask, like, are you going to reform the jack? <laughs> yeah. Which still comes up. And it's, it's quite, you know, quite amazing that people actually think, you know, that he, why would he want to reform? I mean, he can play the jams, play the style count, you know, but he still... He's still a, a modern artist. He's still original. I should avoid that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dennis, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much for your time. I really Thank appreciate you. it, man. Uh, what an what a absolute blast going through all those stories. Thanks a lot. My thanks to Dennis once again, another big highlight in our series so far, and hopefully helping us to get a little step closer to Mr. Weller himself. Please share the episode on your socials, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. You can find us on Twitter, at WellerFanPod, or on Facebook and Instagram, it's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.